Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. Mass shootings in the United States. August 1st, 1966. It may have been one of the first. Unfortunately, it would not be the last. The time is 5.30. David Brinkley is on vacation. I'm Chet Huntley. For an hour and a half today, the normally placid university and capital city of Austin, Texas, was held in the grip of a terror which began in killing and ended in killing. A maddened former Marine, a 24-year-old student in the architectural school named Charles Whitman, first killed his wife and mother in their home. Then he fled to the top of the University Tower, a 27-story building, and from there shot to death at least 13 other people and wounded at least 31. The carnage did not end until police ended Whitman's life with several bullets. Here is a report from Neil Speltz of KTBC-TV, Austin. A Marine veteran who was an expert marksman shot and killed 10 unsuspecting noontime strollers on the University of Texas campus today, and then he was cut down an hour and a half later by an Austin policeman. When the shooting ended, 30 others were seriously injured. And then the bodies of the alleged snipers, mother and wife, were found in his apartment, both dead. The tally at this hour is 13 dead, 30 wounded, and that figure includes the death of the man police say did the shooting. A sniper identified as 24-year-old Charles J. Whitman started shooting from the observation deck of the 27-story tall University Tower. He fell moving targets blocks away. A terror-filled 90 minutes started at 5 minutes before 12 Austin time, and it was 1.22 when policeman Ramiro Martinez shot Whitman. Victims were cut down on the west and south sides of the campus as the sniper zeroed in on his targets with unerring accuracy. Those who were felled with bullets from the high-caliber rifle were pulled to safety as soon as possible by officials and passers-by. Others crouched in terror. Heavily armed Austin police, sheriff's deputies, highway patrolmen, and Texas rangers converged on the campus and began returning the sniper's fire. But he was well entrenched, and he had a fantastic vantage point of the entire area. Reporter Charles Ward was on the scene as the gun battle raged. He described what was happening and then interviewed a Vietnam veteran who risked his life to pull the victims to safety. Ambulances screaming all over the city and more sound. More shots being fired at the tower and on the tower. On the mall. Department shells.
One of those who is out of breath now after running out onto the mall rescuing those who have been shot is Brian Ellison of Austin, who has been in Vietnam and has been back for two years. Brian, how many have you gone out to rescue? Today, too. What did you have to do? Run hard and keep low. Did you have any trouble getting them up, or uh, did any shots come close to you while you were out there? No shots came close to me. Just the last one, he was dead. He was dead weight. He was a little hard to pick up, too limp. Not like someone was knocked out. How many have you seen that are dead today? Just one. I hope not anymore. But many of the victims could not be moved until after the sniper was gunned down. And then the university students moved in to see what had happened. One ambulance driver was shot and critically injured trying to haul the wounded to safety. A policeman was killed as he moved in armed to try to get a sight on the sniper. A University of Texas professor was killed as he walked to class. The campus at one time looked like a battlefield. Dead people were lying on the sidewalks under 100 degree temperature with police and others occasionally darting from cover to cover. The sniper was well armed and apparently planned a long siege. After he was cut down, police hauled out of the barricaded observation deck two 30-06 rifles with telescopic sights, a 357 Magnum pistol, and a shotgun. He had two large jugs of water and a footlocker containing food and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. What caused the man to take the lives of so many and wound so many others on a hot summer day may be found in a letter discovered by the bodies of the alleged sniper's mother and wife late this afternoon. The typed letter related Whitman's headaches and his plans to kill his mother and wife, and a grim notation on the message read, Mother and wife, now dead, 3 a.m. His wife was a biology teacher at an Austin high school. The letter was typed last night. This is Neil Spelz reporting from Austin. Again, Austin police now place the toll at 16 dead, including 14 shot from the campus tower. NBC News is planning a program on the murder and his possible motivations tomorrow night. BBC Television News now presents a special program on today's mass murder in the capital city. Here is KTBC Television News Editor, Neil Spells. Good evening. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire. There are 16 dead and 33 injured. It started last night when a man reportedly killed his wife and his mother. That same man apparently rounded up an arsenal and supplies this morning and then went to the observation deck of the University of Texas Tower. It was then that terror rained down from the tower. Charles Ward was there and described the shooting. There must have been a hit that last time. We hear people outside of our building in an area where we can't now look safely, saying, let's help that boy. Does he need help? Someone must be down. bullets bouncing off the top of the tower. Piece of the tower falling now. And the battle goes on. <laughs> 
sirens screamed for the 90 minutes that the gun battle was in progress. It was hot, past 90 degrees on the ground, probably much hotter, high atop the tower with the sun ricocheting off the limestone with the same intensity as the police bullets. Students, co-eds crouched at the place where they could find safety. Austin police were reinforced in their gun battle by sheriff's deputies, by Texas highway patrolmen, by Texas rangers, and some citizens who were deputized when they offered their services. But from the time the first call came in to the UT police at 11.48 a.m. until Austin police gunned down the man they said was the sniper at 1.22 p.m., the university campus resembled a battlefield. Dead people were lying on the hot sidewalks, and dozens of courageous persons risked death time and time again to try to save them. One funeral director driving an ambulance was shot and critically injured trying to help. An Austin policeman lost his life. A University of Texas professor was killed. Countless students and innocent bystanders fell without knowing what hit them. A boy riding a bicycle was picked off with deadly accuracy. Time and time again, men risked their lives to try to save others, and this man shown here hauling a dead man to safety was one such man, Charles Ward, talked with him after he got back. One of those who is out of breath now after running out onto the mall rescuing those who have been shot is Brian Ellison of Austin, who has been in Vietnam and has been back for two years. Brian, how many have you gone out to rescue? Today, two. What did you have to do? Run hard and keep low. Did you have any trouble getting them up, or uh, did any shots come close to you while you were out there? No shots came close to me. Just the last one, he was dead. He was dead weight. He was a little hard to pick up, too limp. Not like someone who's knocked out. How many have you seen that are dead today? Just one. I hope not anymore. But there were more, many more, and the full impact of today's tragedy still has not been felt because the magnitude of the crime is practically impossible to comprehend. Charles J. Whitman, a 25-year-old Marine veteran who earned a sharpshooter rating while on active duty, he was identified by police as the sniper. He was shot down on the observation deck by two city policemen. The policemen were aided by an Austin man, Alan Crum. The story of how they ended the 90 minutes of terror was told this afternoon at a news conference held by Austin Police Chief Bob Miles. Jack Bowserson was there. When Police Chief Bob Miles held his news conference at 3 o'clock this afternoon, he described the events in which the sniper met his death. Patrolman Romero Martinez worked his way into the building where he found Alan Crum, an assistant manager of the university co-op, and uh, they were armed with a rifle. Martinez deputized Crum, and they took the elevator to the 26th floor along with another officer. Martinez and Crum then crept out on the walkway on the opposite corner from where Whitman was stationed. Chief Miles had a diagram prepared to illustrate what happened then. Is, draw is drawing a diagram here that uh, will show you roughly uh, are you uh, which is north now, Bill? This is north. Okay. South, east, west. Martinez came out here and crawled around at this point. That's the roof over there. This is the, that's the first. Looking down on top of the thing. Up here is the bell. This is the wall around the inner part of the building here. The bell is above here. Martinez came out and went around the east side crawling. Crumb came out and went west this way. And as and the, the subject was sitting here leaning up back this way with the gun pointing this direction. 
as Martinez rounded this corner here, he saw him with his gun in this direction. He knew Mr. Crum was coming this way, and he had to come around the corner at the same time. Martinez fired from here, from this point here. As he swung his rifle toward him, he fired. As he saw him leveling the rifle, pointing the rifle in this direction, and knowing that Mr. Crum was here. He was pointing the rifle at Crum when Martinez yes. fired. And Martinez was coming around this way. So Martinez fired, and the reign of terror came to an end. The rifle that Whitman was aiming was a military surplus carbine, one of an arsenal of seven firearms that were found in a footlocker that Whitman had hauled up with him. Besides the carbine, there was a six-millimeter Remington Magnum equipped with a four-power scope sight, a 35 caliber pump rifle, plus a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun, two handguns, a 357 Magnum and a nine-millimeter Luger, and another gun that was later discovered on Whitman's body. There were other supplies and weapons in the footlocker, a hammer, a hatchet, two hunting knives, one a large bowie knife with a bone handle, gasoline, rags, a large supply of nylon cord, cans of pork and beans, a loaf of bread, a large can of water, and lots more ammunition. There was also a transistor radio. When we saw it at the station, the dial was not tuned to any station, but police speculated that Whitman may have been tuned in to a play-by-play -play report of the consternation he was causing as he perched there for an hour and a half this afternoon. The man here beside me is Alan Crum. He was deputized to go up on the tower with the two policemen who ended the gun battle. Mr. Crum, could you tell us how you happened to be in the tower building in the first place? Well, I uh, <coughs> became involved in this when I looked out of the co-op windows and saw a boy shot across the street. I went across the street to investigate because I thought it was a small fight. And as I stepped out the door, I heard the sound of shots. And uh, Officer Martinez, and myself and Officer Dave started up the staircase where uh, we worked our way up to the next floor and we began to search the offices up there. Mm -hmm. well, we found three more people and one of these gentlemen, uh, his family was in the corridor and they had all been shot. Now, the people on the 26th floor were not hurt, but the people... Uh, no, sir. The next half flight of stairs up was where this man had shot them all in the corridor. When did you finally locate uh, Whitman? It was quite a few minutes because uh, <clears throat> we worked our way up. We thought perhaps he might be in this corridor, and we didn't know the building. We had to work rather cautiously. We worked our way up to the end of the corridor where a set of stairs went to the left, and I covered uh, with the rifle for Martinez and... Officer Day, while they got the boy that was still alive out of the line of fire, because he told us the man was outside and couldn't see us. Mm -hmm. While Officer Day was taking care of the wounded boy, as far as I know, uh, Officer Martinez and I, we took the stairs. Mm -hmm. And we got to the top of the stairs, and this man had barricaded the staircase with a desk and a chair and a waste can, and we figured uh, he was either in there or out on the walk-around ledge. So we very cautiously pushed the desk out, and we saw blood on the floor, and we realized someone had been killed up there or badly wounded. And we found the, uh, a lady up behind the couch. And uh, then we, Officer Day uh, joined us again, and we began to work our way out on the ledge, or this walk-around ledge thing. Mm -hmm. Did you know and, uh, where he was when you actually went out on the ledge? Uh, <clears throat> at this time, we still didn't know if there was one or two men up there. It was a very good possibility of two because of the fast rate of fire. We figured that uh, we'd cover all the windows, 
cover the man going out the door using our old infantry style tactics. Officer Martinez went out first. I covered the east and south windows. He covered the door and the west windows. He went out and they covered as much as he could also. And then we got uh, Martinez out the door. He covered the uh, north walk and the west walk and I got out the door and, and they came out and they went to the northeast corner. I stayed in the southeast and worked my way slightly up the path there and uh, they made contact with him first and I thought I heard him running southwards on the west walk so I fired one shot down the walkway into the wall to try to stop him there and uh, again it sounded as if he had reversed his direction and ran back to the uh, northwest corner where he uh, ran into the other officers from the north northwest corner excuse me they were in the northeast corner, and the firefight resumed, and they uh, terminated it right there. Mm -hmm. As soon as the word of the sniper's attack came in, reporter Joe Roddy rushed immediately to Brackenridge Hospital. All afternoon long, he maintained a vigil there, sorting out the names of those who were dead and those who were wounded. Here's his report. Those reported dead by the police department, verified by our hospital reports from the several hospitals that the victims were taken. We have prepared a menu board for you to read them as we read them here for you on Channel 7 News. At uh, dead on arrival, the persons uh, shot by the gunman apparently in the early morning hours of this morning, the wife of the, the gunman, Mrs. Charles Joseph Whitman, 23 years old at 906 Jewel. The body is at Wilkie Clay Funeral Home. The gunman's mother, Mrs. C. A. Whitman, her age at the moment not available, services pending at the Cook Funeral Home, her body found in a downtown apartment house at 1212 Guadalupe Street. Now we will look at the list as prepared by Brackenridge Hospital officials. Dead at the hospital, 23-year-old Thomas Ashton, a resident of Redlands, California, a Peace Corps trainee. Body is at Wilkie Clay. 33-year-old Robert Boyer, a resident of 3305B Hampton Road, a professor last year at the University of Texas, his immediate family now living in Scotland, his father and mother living in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Dead on arrival at Brackenridge Hospital was 18-year-old Thomas Ekman, a resident of Barcelona, Spain, a student by the name of Della Martinez, a resident of 2515 Rio Grande here in Austin, but from Monterey, Mexico, and her mother, Mrs. Marina Martinez of Monterey, were both treated for minor injuries from fragments of shells, uh, perhaps from a ricochet, and uh, released from the medical center at the University of Texas. Now, in regards to the hospital situation, needless to say, it was a very trying moment. But we will tell you this because we saw it firsthand. The disaster plan, the result of many hours, weeks, months, and years of experience, worked beautifully. Preparations had been made, training orders had been given, training exercises carried out. It was fantastic to see the number of people respond to the stat conditions given by the administrator of the hospital. Fifteen registered nurses were in the emergency room at one time. A dozen or so private physicians left their offices, left their homes, uh, on off-duty hours and rushed to the hospital to render any kind of assistance they could. An event such as today's history-making tragedy is sure to have an impact on the university campus. Charles Ward today attended a news conference hosted by UT officials. Here's his report. 
University of Texas officials expressed that shock at a news conference on campus this afternoon. The chancellor, Dr. Harry Ransom, witnessed the mass murder from the upper floors of the tower. Dr. Ransom first read a prepared statement and then gave his personal views on the heroism shown by students. The community is appalled, is stunned by the appalling tragedy which occurred today. University officers are cooperating fully with law enforcement agencies. No explanation of motive in any normal context is available. Mr. Whitman's academic record at the university was above average. There was no disciplinary record on his official transcript. The chairman and the chancellor expressed deep concern and sympathy for the family of those persons who lost their lives and for those who were injured and their relatives. Both noted the heroism and selflessness of students, law enforcement officers, and staff who attempted, often successfully, to rescue those hurt and in danger. To that official statement, I must add informally that from the tower, I have never seen, nor have I ever imagined, anything like it. Youngsters in white shirts who saw these things happen came out from buildings at great length and either rescued or took care of persons who were hit. It's incredible and it's very heart-lifting. But in a moment of very deep sadness. Charles Whitman had an uneven academic record at the university. He maintained a low C average before he entered the Marine Corps in 1963. When he returned, he brought his grade point average up to a solid B. One of the professors who knew him well is Dr. Leonard Chrysley in the mechanical engineering department. He seemed to be very well liked by the students in his class. I had him in one class myself. He did very prompt work. He did neat work. So far as I could tell, he seemed to be very happy of his family. He brought his wife up and introduced her to me. And so far as I could tell, as of fall 1962, through about May of this year, he seemed to be mature and very, very serious. Dr. Chrysley mentioned Whitman's scouting activities. Vern Lundquist explored this facet of Whitman's life with A.G. Vinsick. He was an Eagle Scout at 12, and 12 years of age for an Eagle Scout is uh, very, very unusual. How would you uh, describe his association with the Scout members, with the boys that he worked with? He was there only a short time in that capacity because of his... Uh, uh, other work and studies and so forth taking up most of his time but uh, he was uh, our scoutmaster for three or four months and during that time we just all loved him I mean he was good he was good to the boys he worked the boys he took them out on campouts and and uh, worked them and took five-mile hikes and and uh, he was just a typical scout Whitman's life was also tragic in the effect on his wife and mother. As you know, both were found dead when the police moved into their follow-up investigation of the shooting. Daryl Davis went to the homes of the two women and came back with this report. 
The bizarre and disturbing incident of the sniper was followed very quickly by the discovery of the body of Whitman's wife at their home at 906 Jewel Street in South Austin. And almost simultaneously in another part of town, Whitman's mother was found murdered. Mrs. C.A. Whitman's body was discovered in her residence at the Penthouse Apartments, 1212 Guadalupe. At the Whitman home, Lieutenant Merle Wells talked with newsmen about the discovery and about a note the man had written. In this letter, he said that he was going to uh, kill his wife and mother to save them and the embarrassment of, of what he was about to do. That the reason for him killing them is that uh, he has been having severe headaches and has been to a psychiatrist. And he said that about himself? Yes. No, I don't. What is the condition of the house right now? It's very neat and clean and uh, not anything out of order. She's lying in bed on her back. Has, she has three stab wounds instead of two, as we thought at first. And we think that they they were caused by that uh, large hunting knife that uh, was with the stuff up at the tower. The 23-year-old wife, Kathleen, was a biology teacher at Lanier High School. She was working for the telephone company this summer. Police were tipped off to the killings when they learned Whitman had called the telephone company this morning to report that his wife would not be at work. At a news conference this evening, Police Chief Bob Miles said both the mother and the wife had been shot. Investigators at the scene, as was included in the film interview, told newsmen the wife had been stabbed three times. The discrepancy of these reports apparently can be uh, put as the result of the simple and complex, confused situation. Chief Miles said the typewritten note left by Whitman requested an autopsy on himself to see why he did it. In the note, he said that he would kill. Whitman grimly typed out the reason for killing his wife to save her embarrassment. About his mother, Whitman wrote, if there's a heaven, mother is there. If there is no heaven, he said, she's resting now after living 25 years with my father, who I hated with a mortal passion. And then on the apparently carefully typed out letter, a handwritten scrawl, 3 a.m., wife and mother dead. Nine hours later, the massacre from the tower would begin. Here again is Neil Speltz. KTVC newsmen, Phil Miller and John Tholley, were shot at several times today by the sniper as they moved around the campus to try to ferret out what was going on. Tholley actually rescued some of the wounded victims in between shooting film to record what was going on. Miller helped load the dead city policeman into an ambulance. Here's Miller's report on what he went through as he covered today's story. I pulled over to the curb just south of the West Mall entrance and got out of the car. Joe Lee, one of our photographers who came with me, ran to the side of the architecture building while I ran across Guadalupe and got down behind some cars. Joe and I had heard firing as I parked the car, but it seemed sort of far off in the distance. But as I ran behind a car, the shot from the rifle sounded like it was almost in my ear, and I could hear the bullet ricochet. In all honesty, I still didn't realize just exactly what was going on. But some of the students crouched behind the car with me said the rifleman really was on the tower and had the whole campus pinned down. When I asked if anyone had been hit, someone said five people that he knew of, including a little boy on a bicycle. I ran inside one of the stores on the drag and made my first report for Radio 59, noting that occasionally someone would run from one shelter to another. But the running was always sporadic, in short bursts, like on an open battlefield. 
I went back down the steps and saw a policeman making his way along the wall toward the steps leading to the mall. There might have been more than one patrolman, but all I saw was one. I wanted to get to him to try and find out what the police were going to do. I kept close to the wall, but the policeman, I guess he thought he was sheltered by the trees above the wall, was walking sort of crouched over, but the sniper could see him. I yelled at the policeman, but he didn't hear me, and I was just about 10 yards away when I heard the rifle on the tower and the patrolman fell to the ground. I don't know how that guy saw the policeman or even how he could have shot him, but he did. I learned later it was Billy Speed. A girl was fairly close to me. And she just kept saying, he shot the policeman, he shot the policeman. I went back to the steps, some more students ran up. The other officers moved Speed to some shade and then we all carried him back near the entrance to the post office where we put Speed in an ambulance. I can't remember how I got to the Catholic Student Center, but I do remember going over a fence through someone's backyard and hear the rifle fire again and a whine through the trees. There were some people in the backyard huddled against a garage, I think, but when that rifle fired, I, I really cleared that fence. I called the station again from the student center and went out the back way, doubled back across University Street, and I could hear a radio saying the sniper was firing south. Well, that's where I was, so I, I waited a while and then heard he was firing north, and I ran to the median in the center of the street. I stayed behind a tree, but that tower was in plain view. I ran from the tree across to the other part of the street, and I heard the rifle fire, and something smacked that tree behind me. I dove to the ground, got behind a car. I waited a pretty long time then, and I remember wondering if he really shot at me or whether it was just my imagination. And why me? He didn't know me. Death is always such an impersonal thing. It's him or her, but not me. So why me? I ran some more. I probably remember that most of all. I always seem to be running somewhere. Governor John Connolly, a man who has also been felled by a sniper's bullet, said tonight in Rio de Janeiro that he is canceling the remainder of his South American trip due to today's tragedy. Patrolman Ramiro Martinez was at home cooking steak when he heard the reports of the shooting on the radio. He rushed over in his car. As he arrived, six persons were lying on the mall. He found four bodies in the tower. Martinez and others rushed in on the tower deck and shot Whitman down. Dr. Harry Ransom at the University of Texas announces that all summer classes at the university will be suspended tomorrow. Classes will resume Wednesday. Campus flags will fly at half-mast during this week. The story of the sniper is not ended. It's not ended for the families who have loved ones to bury and loved ones to care for. It's not ended for the police and other officials, including the governor, who intend to carry out the investigation into this unbelievable tragedy. And it's not ended in the quest for facts. For most of Austin, the events of this day have been more than any could comprehend. This is Neil Spells. Thank you, and good evening. This has been a news special produced by the KTBC-TV News Department. Repeating, a sniper with a high-powered rifle has taken up a position on the observation deck.
On August 1, 1966, 25-year-old Charles Whitman climbed to the top of the University of Texas Tower and in just 96 minutes shot 45 people before two Austin police officers brought him down. The night before ascending the tower, Whitman brutally murdered his wife and his mother. In doing so, Whitman committed what was then the largest mass murder in American history. Charles Whitman was uh, the first in a number of ways. He was the first person to take his guns and go to school. The final tally was grim. In less than 24 hours, Charles Whitman caused the deaths of 17 people and horrifically wounded 31 others. The mass killing spree left an indelible mark on the state's flagship university and the residents of its capital city in an age before Columbine, before Oklahoma City, before 9-11, Charles Whitman was America's first domestic terrorist. Charles Joseph Whitman was described by many as the all-American boy. Growing up in Lake Worth, Florida, he became an accomplished piano player. At the age of 12 years and three months, the youngest Eagle Scout in the world. He was also a crack shot with many of the rifles that filled the Whitman home. His accomplishments, however, came at a cost. Charles Whitman's father, C.A. Whitman, was a stern disciplinarian and frequently beat his wife and children for the smallest transgressions. After a night of drinking on his 18th birthday, Charles was beaten and thrown into the family pool by his outraged father. The next morning, Charles Whitman joined the Marine Corps. Used to tough discipline and familiar with firearms, Charles excelled on the rifle range and achieved the rating of sharpshooter. Soon, his superiors recommended the young Marine for an engineering scholarship, and in the fall of 1961, Charles Whitman was admitted to the University of Texas. Once enrolled, Charles met the woman who would become the love of his life. Kathleen Leisner entered the University of Texas as a beautiful young woman from South Texas. Their courtship was quick, and on August 17, 1962, the two young lovers were married in Kathy's hometown church in Needville, Texas. Once back in Austin, Charlie quickly fell into academic trouble, lost his scholarship, and returned to the enlisted ranks of the Marines. His second experience was nothing like his first. Missing his wife and eager to return to Austin, Charlie fell into trouble, spent time locked up in the brig, and as soon as his enlistment was up, returned to Texas and re-enrolled in the university as an architectural engineering student. Eager to finish, Charles took a heavy load of courses, but soon complained of headaches and had trouble concentrating on his studies. As a freshman in 1961, Whitman had remarked to friends that the university's main building, the tower, was a perfect fortress in which one man could hold off an army. In the summer of 1966, Charles Whitman's thoughts returned to the tower and its potential as the perfect sniper's nest. Charles Whitman was leading a very stressful and tormented life. It developed into anger. The incident that probably brought about his final decision to, um, to die, but to take a lot of people with him before he did it, was when his mother and father separated um, in uh, February or March of 1966. In the final days of July 1966, Whitman, experiencing frequent headaches and convinced he would be unable to achieve success, made up his mind to die. 
His death, he decided, would be as spectacular as possible, a death in which his father would be humiliated in front of the nation. Accordingly, on the night of July 31st, Whitman began preparations for a one-man massacre. After dropping off his wife, Catherine, for her shift at the Southwestern Bell Telephone Exchange, Whitman returned to his house in South Austin and began to type out a letter. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she has been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I truly do not consider this world worth living in, and am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. After hiding the letter out of sight, Whitman picked up his wife, dropped her off at home, and drove to his mother's apartment building at 13th and Guadalupe. Entering penthouse apartment 505 a few minutes after midnight, Whitman quickly turned to the business at hand. Based on the timeline established by the night watchman's records, it appears Whitman attacked his mother, Margaret Whitman, as soon as she shut the door. Although the exact details can never be known, it is surmised that Whitman first strangled his mother with a five-foot piece of rubber hose, then crushed the back of her skull with a heavy object and smashed the wedding and engagement rings on her left hand. Finally, he stabbed her in the heart with a large hunting knife. In a macabre reversal of roles, Whitman then tucked his mother into bed. As he had done earlier in the evening, Whitman sat down to leave an explanation for his crime. To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I'm very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. Before returning home, Whitman left a note taped to the front door of the apartment to forestall anyone from checking on his mother. Returning to his small home on Jewel Street, Whitman took out the large hunting knife, entered the front bedroom, and quickly stabbed his sleeping wife through the heart. It is doubtful and perhaps merciful that Catherine Whitman never knew what happened. Returning to his type note, Whitman then added in longhand. 8-1-66, Monday, 3 a.m., both dead. When the sun rose, Whitman drove to the Sears department store in Hancock Center where he purchased a 12-gauge Sears shotgun on credit. Returning home, he sawed off both the stock and barrel. Working quickly now and methodically, Whitman packed his Marine Corps footlocker with everything he would need for a long siege. After his death, the Austin Police Department listed the contents, including a Remington 6mm bolt-action rifle, an N1 carbine, a 35 caliber Remington pump rifle, the sawed-off Sears 12-gauge shotgun, a 9mm Luger pistol, a Galici Brassica pistol, and a 357 Smith & Wesson Magnum revolver. Also included, an AM-FM radio, a three-and-a-half-gallon jug of water, a three-and-a-half-gallon jug of gasoline, flashlight batteries, several lengths of rope, a compass, a ballpoint pen, a hatchet, a hammer, a cigarette lighter, a canteen full of water, a hunting knife, a pocket knife, a 10-inch pipe wrench, eyeglasses and case, kitchen matches, binoculars, charcoal starter and army duffel bag, a flashlight, earplugs, tape, gloves, a deer bag, bread and sweet rolls, 12 assorted cans of food, a jar of honey, a roll of toilet paper, and over 700 rounds of ammunition. Charles Whitman was prepared to stay atop the tower for several days. 
Whitman dressed in light blue working man's coveralls and lashed his footlocker to a rented dolly. At 11 a.m., with a temperature 90 degrees and climbing, Charles Whitman climbed into his car and drove to the Texas Tower. Before leaving, he stopped to write one final note for the police. At the Whitman home, Lieutenant Merle Wells talked with Newsman about the discovery and about a note the man had written. In this letter, he said that he was going to uh, kill his wife and mother to save them and the embarrassment of, of what he was about to do. That the reason for him killing them is that uh, he has been having severe headaches and has been to a psychiatrist. And he said that about himself? Yes. No, I don't. What is the condition of the house right now? It's very neat and clean and uh, not anything out of order. She's lying in bed on her back. As she has three stab wounds instead of two, as we thought at first. And we think that they were caused by that uh, large hunting knife that uh, was with the stuff up at the tower. Arriving at the tower, Whitman parked at the base of the building, rolled his dolly into elevator number two, and began the 30-second ride to the 27th floor. After exiting the elevator, Whitman slowly manhandled his footlocker up two flights of stairs until he reached the 28th floor and the entrance to the observation deck. The first to die was 47-year-old receptionist Edna Townsley. From police photographs, it is believed that Whitman struck Townsley in the back of the head near her desk and then dragged the dying woman across the floor and deposited her body behind a small beige sofa on the room's east side. A young couple, Cheryl Bont and Don Walden, were outside on the observation deck. We decided to go on in and not stay to hear the chimes. So as we walked into the reception area, the first thing I noticed was that the receptionist was not at her desk, but it was almost noon, so I rationalized she was probably already gone to lunch. And then in front of us was a, a reddish-brown stain all the way across the floor that had not been there when we came up. And the only thing I could think of was varnish. It looked like the color of varnish. And I thought, well, maybe they were going to varnish the floor. I pointed it out to Don so that we could step over it. And as we're getting ready to step over it, we heard something and, a, and there was a, a movement to the right. And as we looked to the right, uh, Whitman was there and he turned around and faced us and had a rifle in each hand. And as he turned around, I smiled and spoke to him and he said hello to me as well. And again, we didn't stop and carry on a conversation, didn't ask what he was doing or anything. We just kept walking. Don told me later he wondered if he was going to go out to shoot pigeons, but he didn't ask him that, and probably that was a very good thing. I think what saved us is we didn't stop walking through the room, we didn't stop talking, we didn't stop and ask him what he was doing, we did not impede what he had in mind. We did not question him. Uh, we simply interrupted him for about 15 seconds. While we were going down one elevator, the Gabor family from Texarkana was going up the other elevator because they were right behind us. He was still in the reception room, had not yet gone out on the observation deck, and they tried to go up that staircase that we had just gone down. And he shot for the five members of that family. So. I mean, there's no reason why he shouldn't have shot us, except that we caught him off guard. He wasn't ready. In the days following, Austin Police Chief Bob Miles would remark that the two were the luckiest people in Austin.
Moments later, two families on vacation, the Lamports and the Gabors, were ambushed in the stairwell leading to the 28th floor. Within moments, Marguerite Lamport and her 16-year-old nephew, Mark Gabor, were dead, killed by at least three blasts from Whitman's sawed-off shotgun. The attack also critically injured 19-year-old Michael Gabor and his mother, Mary. The staircase now awash in blood. The bodies of the living and the dead tumbled down the stairs where they would languish for nearly two hours. Six years later, the terribly injured Mary Gabor would publish her account of the family's tragic encounter with Charles Whitman in an autobiography entitled The Impossible Tree. With the landing secure, Charles Whitman wrapped a white headband around his forehead, walked out through the glass panel door and into the searing Texas heat. Opening his footlocker, he removed the six millimeter Remington, leaned over the southern edge of the wall and took careful aim at the innocent souls below. The first to be shot was 18-year-old Claire Wilson. She was eight months pregnant and was strolling across the mall with her boyfriend and father of her child, Thomas Frederick Ekman. Whitman's first shot pierced Claire's womb and shattered the skull of her unborn baby boy. As she fell to the pavement, her boyfriend reached for her and was shot in the upper back. He was killed instantly. This is Neil Spelson, Red Rover, on the University of Texas campus. This is a warning to the citizens of Austin. Stay away from the university area. And there is a sniper on the university tower firing at will. As the bodies began to fall, reporters and cameramen from KTBC Channel 7 began to get word that something was happening on campus. So we got back to the station and walked into the foyer of the station and looked down and there was a picture of the top of the UT Tower, very shaky, just going up and down as if it were being shot from a long distance. And we looked at it and we looked over at the phone receptionist like, what's going on? And that's when she told us that somebody was up on top of the tower firing at people. And we both just looked at each other and just took off upstairs to start grabbing camera equipment. And we were um, coming downstairs when Charles Ward, who was another one of the uh, reporters, uh, who was off duty, he did the evening news, and he was, of course, off duty at that time of day, but he'd heard it on his television, and he'd come running over, and we met him in the foyer, and Charles uh, was in the National Guard with some of the rest of us, and he had grabbed his uh, steel helmet that he'd been issued, so he was wearing a, a steel pot helmet, which we thought was a little over the top at the time, but that's what he wanted to do, so we all piled into one of the vehicles and uh, took off um, over to the um, campus. We worked our way up the uh, South Mall under the trees again and finally got up to uh, Bats Hall and went up to the, um, I guess, the second floor. Up to this time, we could see people hiding behind trees sitting there. I stuck the camera out the window and started shooting the footage that you've probably seen before of the, the tower with the puffs of smoke coming up where people were shooting. And I flipped on the camera and I remember thinking at the time, it, it was sort of detached. I mean, it, it was as if I was, were watching it on TV. And then I started getting this peculiar feeling that uh, uh, a number of people have described later uh, that I could see him, therefore, theoretically, he could see me. And I got this almost crawly feeling on me, like, like you know, the gun sights on me or, or, or something like that. I then jumped into a mobile unit myself and rushed to the campus and started broadcasting live. Interestingly, I saw several citizens of Austin 
dressed in normal shirt sleeves and uh, uh, khaki pants, carrying high-powered weapons, running toward me and running toward the campus. Well, what happened, they were citizens who heard the broadcast and heard me say, stay away, but their instinctive reaction was to the contrary. They grabbed their own deer rifles that they had, rushed to the campus, and started firing at the sniper, almost like a vigilante uh, effort. In retrospect, a, a lot of folks were critical of these average citizens coming out with a weapon and engaging in a firefight uh, with a, a madman. But uh, I looked at it totally differently. These guys who fired at the top of the tower, when they turned their weapons toward the tower, they pinned Charles Whitman down. And after his initial surge, where he did most of his damage, uh, up until the time he was actually killed, uh, the latter part of that time frame, maybe as much as 30, 45 minutes, he did very little damage. One, because people were hiding and people were staying out of the way, but two, because he was pinned down by these citizens who were shooting back at him, along with a few of the police officers who got their own uh, weapons that they had at home. One of the first police officers to arrive on campus was 22-year-old Billy Speed. Officer Speed, seen here crouching down and below a statue of Jefferson Davis, must have assumed he was covered by the thick limestone railings. Officer Speed assumed he was safe. But Whitman, warming to his game, proved him wrong. Whitman's first shot missed, but a second round hit Officer Speed in the shoulder and tore into his chest. Students frantically tried to help the officer. He was loaded into one of the first ambulances to arrive, taken to Brackenridge Hospital, but was dead on arrival. In the days following, KTBC produced and aired a 30-minute special on the Whitman murders. With Neil Spels in the anchor chair, the program featured this interview filmed live during the shooting. Countless students and innocent bystanders fell without knowing what hit them. A boy riding a bicycle was picked off with deadly accuracy. Time and time again, men risked their lives to try to save others, and this man shown here hauling a dead man to safety was one such man, Charles Ward, talked with him after he got back. One of those who is out of breath now after running out onto the mall rescuing those who have been shot is Brian Ellison of Austin, who has been in Vietnam, has been back for two years. Brian, how many have you gone out to rescue? Today, two. What did you have to do? Run hard and keep low. Did you have any trouble getting them up, or uh, did any shots come close to you while you were out there? No shots came close to me. Just the last one, he was dead. He was dead weight. He was a little hard to pick up, too limp. Not like someone who's knocked out. How many have you seen that are dead today? Just one. I hope not anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a KLRN news bulletin. Once again, a sniper has taken up a position on the observation deck, on the tower, on the main building, on the campus of the University of Texas, and is firing with his high-powered rifle at people on the campus. As the tower's chimes sounded out the noon hour, the city of Austin began to witness the siege live on television. The public broadcasting station, KLRN, made history that day by airing the sniper attacks live on television. There he is, right in that hole. What he was doing was so preposterous, no one could actually believe it was taking place. The program director uh, figured that what we had was the possibility of a close-up view from our rear studio. 
because it was on Intercampus Drive, it was virtually across the driveway from the first floor, first ground level floor of the tower. And then above us, some 200 feet, was the top of the tower with the observation deck. We managed to find a lens that was used on a film camera, affixed it to our television camera, and aimed it out the back door at the top of the UT tower. It was broadcast. We were able to find in the close-up of the observation deck the blurred movement of someone moving around the tower. Ladies and gentlemen, you can see the sniper if you look closely in the pothole at the bottom of the picture, just under the rim of, of the observation deck. Later, we would find out that, yes, indeed, the networks and all the state TV stations had us tuned in and were carrying our broadcast. Whitman was moving fast now. He transversed all four sides of the observation deck, but found his most fertile killing ground on the west side, facing the section of Guadalupe Street known to Austinites as the drag. For many of those pinned down on the hot sidewalks and storefronts, life and death was a question of inches. I had a standing lunch date with two of my old Longhorn band pals to meet at the Rexall drugstore at 11.20 every day, and then we'd sit there and eat hamburgers and Cokes, and like we said, we solved the problems of the world, you know. lady at the cash register said, you guys better not go out there, somebody's shooting a gun. And we, remember, this was 1966, the whole concept of people just, some, somebody shooting people as a part of a mass murder situation just wasn't in the vocabulary of our mental landscape at that point, you know. And so uh, being the knowledgeable 20-year-olds we were who know everything anyway, we just went right on outside and stood there. You know, and I remember looking back after she said that, though, at, at the clock. It was 11.55. I remember that like it was yesterday. I, I turned back around for somewhere I faced the campus again, and no more than 15 seconds later, a high-powered rifle shot came past my right ear. And it... Uh, it hit a gentleman that was standing inside the lip of the newsstand right there. He was a 38-year-old military veteran with six children and a wife to support. And uh, I didn't realize he'd gotten hit at that point because we were too busy running back inside the drugstore. I mean, we set a land speed record for getting back inside the drugstore. And that's where I stayed during the whole 90 minutes or so that were left in the whole rampage. At that point, I, I realized, boy, how close did I come, you know? Because, I mean, I, I can... I later retraced the whole situation, and I was, I was about four, he was about five, four, maybe five feet to my right when he got hit, you know. He did live for like two more hours at Brackenridge. They had a team of surgeons trying to do what they could for him, but it was just too much damage to his midsection to fix him, you know. The drag quickly became a scene of horror. 17-year-old Karen Griffith, a beautiful young woman preparing for her senior year at Lanier High School, where Charles Whitman's wife Kathy had taught the year before, was walking north down Guadalupe when she was shot through the lung. Transported to Brackenridge Hospital, Karen struggled for her life, but died one week later. In the spring of 1967, the Lanier High School Viking Yearbook included a dedication to both Karen Griffith and Kathleen Whitman. It's like a battle scene. It's like there's another shot and another shot. There are two different kinds of shots. Apparently, police are returning the fire now. Gordon Wilkerson is watching the man through a telephoto lens on his camera, getting the shots and watching and sees the person there. Gordon, is it possible to describe the person? What color shirt is he wearing? Uh, is he a light shirt? You can't tell about his hair, whether he's a dark-haired person or not. Is he wearing glasses? 
And is he light or fair-skinned? From this distance, Gordon Wilkerson reports fair-skinned. There was kind of a small lull in the shooting and what have you. And I looked over to the left, and there was a big old lumbering armored car driving toward uh, one of the bodies that was laying out in front of me. It was obvious what they wanted to try to do because uh, one of them was wounded laying there and they were trying to scoot them up. In fact, there had been several people trying to run out there. And, uh, not successful at all. In fact, they didn't get more than two or three steps. And decided that wasn't smart. He was really peppering that thing. It's kind of a surprise, but it's, uh, I thought, well, that time is a pretty good idea because nobody could get a tank from anywhere around in any timely fashion, so uh, that's the next best thing, I guess. Uh, try to save a life. As was demonstrated repeatedly that day, Charles Whitman was an outstanding marksman. The farthest shot was Billy Snowden, a basketball coach who stopped into the barber shop for a haircut. Hearing shots, he and the barber stepped outside to investigate. From over 500 yards away, Whitman fired, hitting Snowden in the shoulder. Snowden would survive, but the nerve damage ended his basketball career. Whitman continued to demonstrate his prowess with shots so accurate and from such a distance, the victims never knew what hit them. On August 1st, 1966, Roydell Schmidt and I were working partners. About 12.05, we got a call of a partial no-lights at a residence off of Red River Street. We came over to where the Chevrolet car was parked, kneeled down behind it, and looked up toward the tower. And at that time, this tree was a whole lot smaller, and there was just very little space between the lower limbs of this tree and the hood of that Chevrolet car. We stayed here approximately five to 10 minutes. Roy Dell said, we better get out of here, I believe was the exact words. And just as Roy Dell started to stand up, he grabbed his stomach and said, I'm hit, I'm hit. I was on one side and Don Carlson's on the other side of Roydale. So we each grabbed him by the arm and pulled him back a little bit so that he would be shielded by the tree. And then I went over to the city vehicle, got his first aid kit and called in to the electric department dispatcher to send an ambulance. The ambulance pulled around the corner from 19th Street they loaded him in the ambulance and Don Carlson went to the hospital with him. I went back to the service building and I was told then that Roy Dale had died on the way to the hospital. As students ran for cover, Charles Whitman proved that no one was safe from his deadly skill with a rifle. 18-year-old freshman John Scott Allen and several young women ran to a window inside the student union building between the second and third floors. As they were indoors, the students assumed they had reached safety. They were wrong. As they peered out the east window towards the tower, Whitman was peering back. Bullets struck the side of the building and ricocheted through the window pane. The force of the bullet sent glass shards flying into the faces of the two girls, while the bullet itself struck John Allen's upper right arm. Within minutes, the landing was covered in blood. It's an eerie situation. The sirens have not stopped screaming since we arrived on the university campus. Uh, if nine persons have already been brought into Brackenridge Hospital, then more must be on their way because these ambulances are running back to the hospital and they're running back hot.
As the bodies fell across the campus, ambulances responded from funeral homes across the city. In short order, 39 people, either killed or wounded by Whitman, were taken to the city's Brackenridge Hospital. I guess we all thought it couldn't be happening, but at the same time, we had to do what had to be done. You know, we'll worry about this after, the, after we get the work done, uh, but we, right now we have to attend the patient. I myself pronounced four maybe five patients dead. The wounds were so obviously mortal. A girl who was about six or seven months pregnant was shot and uh, when it exited her pelvis, it uh, uh, disrupted one of the major arteries in her pelvis and uh, they almost lost her in surgery. Uh, that was uh, a really uh, a heroic effort, but they succeeded and uh, uh, she was perhaps the last one to recover. I think it was seven or eight or nine months before she was fully recovered from, from those wounds, but she lost a child. One of the things we do in, in this business of news reporting is we're very conscious of relatives of people who are injured or are serious. We, we seldom ever broadcast the names of uh, uh, people who have been killed uh, in any manner until relatives have had a chance to be notified. It's just the decent thing to do. In this case, uh, with the university being so an, much an integral part of this city and its life, and so many people being injured and shot, we made a quick decision at the very beginning, we've got to release the names of those who have been shot or those who are injured or whatever, just because they, it, it, it is important for people to know that, that this one person may have been shot, but there were thousands of other people who knew folks who were in or around the campus and uh, they needed to be reassured that this was not one of theirs as well. So we did broadcast those names. Uh, Joe Roddy was at Brackenridge Hospital in the emergency room, but Joe went down the list of names and it tragically, uh, what you always fear when you release the name of someone before you notify the relatives, the negative impact of that happened, and it happened in our own newsroom. Paul Bolton was the first news director at Channel 7. Uh, Paul Bolton was the first news director for KTBC Radio. And he was the first face and voice to deliver broadcast journalism to this community. As Joe was reading the list of names, he went through all the lists and says, that's it for now. We don't know if these are dead or injured, but these are the folks who have been identified as brought into Brackenridge Hospital. Uh, as he finished that report and says, and now back to you or something like that, Paul Bolton, our news director at the time that was retired, came into the newsroom and was working and he was there and heard Joe's report on the radio. He broke in on the air and says, Joe, Joe, I can hear his voice now just wavering. Joe, Joe, would you please read those names again? I, everybody's interested in those names. I think you have my grandson on that list. It was his grandson. Uh, he, uh, Joe read the list again and uh, went through it, talked about it, and said, uh, as he went down the list, he didn't know it. He didn't know the grandson's name. His grandson was his namesake grandson. It was Paul Bolton Sontag. And it turns out that Paul Bolton Sontag and his girlfriend, 
Claudia Rutt, uh, were getting ready to enroll at the University of Texas as freshmen. They graduated from high school in Austin, and they were walking down the drag, going into the co-op, buying books and uh, items that they needed for the fall semester when they were both shot and killed. Uh, Paul Bolton heard that on the air. Uh, after Joe finished that list, the next voice you heard was not Bolton's. The next voice you heard was Jay Hodgson. And Jay broke in and says, that's it, Joe, I think we've got it. Uh, and then he immediately took uh, Paul Bolton out of the newsroom. In the aftermath of the Whitman murders, city leaders realized the funeral home drivers were inadequately trained in emergency care. In the months following the murders, the city of Austin created the Austin Ambulance Service and the Modern Emergency Medical Services, or EMS, as it is known today, was created. As dozens of deer rifles returned fire in a vain effort to pick Whitman off, three police officers and a civilian named Alan Crum took matters into their own hands. Making their way across campus, the men rode the elevator to the top floor and prepared to face the unknown killer on the confined space of the observation deck. As I was going up the elevator, I uh, decided, hey, this is getting pretty serious because you could still hear all that fire, all that shooting, you know, it was kind of muffled in the, in the elevator, but you could still hear it. Being a good Catholic that I was, I uh, decided to say an act of contrition, which is a prayer that uh, I was taught to say in case uh, imminent death is uh, probable, uh, that uh, this way the atone for your sins and maybe the pearly gates will be open for you. You know, So I said this prayer as I went up. When I reached the 27th floor, of course, I had my gun out and elevator door open and uh, I was facing Jerry Day pistol and uh, this other man had a white shirt on and had a rifle and they were pointing it at me and I was pointing the gun at him and so it's just King's Axe. We smiled and let out a sigh of relief and I got out there. So a gentleman came out and uh, he had a white shirt on, a pair of white shoes and he was bloody and the white shoes were bloody, women's shoes. And he said, that SOB has killed my family up there. He, let me have your gun, I'll go kill him. And uh, we had to, Jerry and I had to wrestle with him to restrain him because he wanted to get our weapons and we couldn't have a distraction like that. So we wrestled him to the next elevator and we pushed him inside the elevator and Jerry had to restrain him and hold him and we sent Jerry down with him to get him out of the way. And I started going up when uh, the man with the rifle said, uh, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go look for the, the guy. And he said, well, you're not going by yourself. He says, I'm coming with you. And boy, I felt so happy that he volunteered to come with me because at that time I felt pretty lonely, you know, but uh, now that he was at my side, I was happy, ready to go. So there's only one exit, and that's a glass door on the southeast corner. He had the dolly that he had used to transport all that materials up there. He had it propped against the door. I pushed and pushed and really had to do a lot of effort before I could push the door back and the dolly went over and he clang, 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 you know. And so I stood there at the door, cracked it open and I was waiting with my pistol. I thought he'd come to investigate the, the sound, but uh, there was so much rifle fire that uh, I guess he didn't hear it. For some reason I turned around and that was Houston McCoy was behind me. He had a shotgun. He had come up and come out. He's a tall guy, he's over six feet tall. And he was uh, standing kind of straight up with his head down. 
And I had to motion to him with my hand, give him some hand signals to get down. And uh, it didn't seem like he comprehended, but a couple of rounds hit above his head, you know, a couple of feet up there. And I think he got the message then because then he, he got down. Then I finally saw the sniper sitting uh, in a sitting position, aiming his rifle at the uh, southwest corner. And right away I thought, that civilian has left his position and he's aiming at him, he's gonna shoot him. So I, I fired a shot at him and I hit him on the left side and uh, he jumped up to his feet like a cat and he was trying to bring that M1 carbine uh, to bear down on me and I just kept advancing and shooting and I hollered at McCoy to fire, which he did. McCoy hit him with a shotgun and it just kind of spun him around. Uh, my gun was empty at that time. I dropped my gun, I reached and got the shotgun and blasted him one more time as he hit the deck. And that was the end of it. Chief Miles had a diagram prepared to illustrate what happened then. He's drawing, drawing a diagram here that uh, will show you roughly uh, are you go. Uh, which is north now, Bill? This is north. Okay. South, east, west. Martinez came out here and crawled around at this point. That's the roof over there. This is the that's 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 looking that's down on top of the thing. Up here is the bell. This is the wall around the inner part of the building here. The bell is above here. Martinez came out and went around the east side crawling. Crumb came out and went west this way. And as Martinez and the the subject was sitting here, leaning up back this way with the gun pointing this direction. As Martinez rounded this corner here, he saw him with his gun in this direction. He knew Mr. Crumb was coming this way, and he had to come around the corner at the same time. Martinez fired from here, from this point here. As he as he, as he saw him leveling the rifle, pointing the rifle in this direction, and knowing that Mr. Crumb was here. He was pointing a rifle at Crumb when Martinez yes. fired. And Martinez was around this way. So Martinez fired, and the reign of terror came to an end. All of a sudden, things got quiet. And then Neil Spouse said on, on the radio, it's over. We just, in mass, came out of the stores. The entire campus was flooded with people. Uh, people just from everywhere, uh, literally hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people who had been in the buildings or had been on the periphery just came rushing out onto the campus, uh, just uh, like a magnet had just sucked them all into that. Just as I got to the tower, two detectives were bringing out Martinez, and he was in shock. I tell you, that guy, he just, just you know, almost rigid and had some blood on his arm, and I asked one of the detectives, said, is that his blood or the other guy? And they said, the other guys, and man, they just kept going. They didn't even slow down, put out an extra that night. That's probably the first time since, well, maybe World War II started. Alan Crum, the deputized civilian who faced Whitman on top of the tower, appeared on KTBC to tell his story. The man here beside me is Alan Crum. He was deputized to go up on the tower with the two policemen who ended the gun battle. Mr. Crum, could you tell us how you happened to be in the tower building in the first place? Well, I uh, <clears throat> became involved in this when I looked out of the co-op windows and saw a boy shot across the street. 
I went across the street to investigate because I thought it was a small fight. And as I stepped out the door, I heard the sound of shots. And uh, Officer Martinez and myself and Officer Dage started up the staircase where uh, we worked our way up to the next floor and we began to search the offices up there. Mm -hmm. We found three more people. And one of these gentlemen, uh, his family was in the corridor and they had all been shot. Now, the people on the 26th floor were not hurt, but the people... Uh, no, sir. The next half flight of stairs up was where this man had shot them all in the corridor. When did you finally locate uh, Whitman? It was quite a few minutes because uh, <clears throat> we worked our way up. We thought perhaps he might be in this corridor, and we didn't know the building. We had to work rather cautiously. We worked our way up to the end of the corridor where a set of stairs went to the left, and I covered uh, with the rifle for Martinez and... Officer Day, while they got the boy that was still alive out of the line of fire, because he told us the man was outside and couldn't see us. Mm -hmm. While Officer Day was taking care of the wounded boy, as far as I know, uh, Officer Martinez and I, we took the stairs. Mm -hmm. And we got to the top of the stairs, and this man had barricaded the staircase with a desk and a chair and a waste can, and we figured uh, he was either in there or out on the walk-around ledge. So we very cautiously pushed the desk out, and we saw blood on the floor, and we realized someone had been killed up there or badly wounded. And we found the, uh, a lady up behind the couch. And uh, then we, Officer Day uh, joined us again, and we began to work our way out on the ledge, uh, this walk-around ledge thing. Did you know and, uh, where he was when you actually went out on the ledge? Uh, <clears throat> at this time, we still didn't know if there was one or two men up there. It was a very good possibility of two because of the fast rate of fire. We figured that uh, we'd cover all the windows, cover the man going out the door using our old infantry style tactics. Officer Martinez went out first. I covered the east and south windows. He covered the door and the west windows. He went out and they covered as much as he could also. And then we got uh, Martinez out the door. He covered the uh, north walk and the west walk and I got out the door and, and they came out and they went to the northeast corner. I stayed in the southeast and worked my way slightly up the path there and uh, they made contact with him first and I thought I heard him running southwards on the west walk so I fired one shot down the walkway into the wall to try to stop him there and uh, again it sounded as if he had reversed his direction and ran back to the uh, northwest corner where he uh, ran into the other officers from the north, northwest corner, excuse me. And they were in the northeast corner, and the firefight resumed, and they uh, terminated it right there. The final tally shocked a nation. In a 24-hour period, Charles Whitman murdered 15 people and severely wounded 31. If Claire Wilson's healthy, unborn baby boy is included, the total rises to 16. But there was still one more death to record. On November 21st, 2001, David Gunby, shot on the South Mall and one of two victims rescued by the armored car, died from kidney failure in Dallas. After living with constant pain for 35 years and in steadily declining health, Gunby refused any further treatment. The official cause of death was listed as a homicide. Three and a half decades after he climbed the tower, Charles Whitman claimed his last victim. He was sitting up there for more than an hour, way up there on the Texas Tower, shooting 
from the 27th floor. He didn't choke or slash or slip them. Not our Charles Joseph Whitman. He won't be an architect no more. Got up that morning. Almost immediately after Whitman's death, questions on how such a public massacre could have happened were pondered in the nation's media. Rumors of a brain tumor began to circulate in the nation's newspapers, while notions of insanity were mulled over by criminal psychologists. Whitman's use of dexedrine tablets prior to the murders led many to blame the drug culture then emerging on the nation's college campuses. Whatever the cause, Charles Whitman began to evolve into a mislabeled anti-hero within American popular culture. Whitman was the subject of popular songs by Harry Chapin and Kinky Friedman. This trend reflected American pop culture's obsession with guns and murder. Unfortunately, even mass murderers who make history are often given a hero status that I find personally offensive. Charles Whitman was on the verge of becoming uh, a hero in southwestern folklore in the same way Jesse James was, in the same way Bonnie and Clyde have become folk heroes, um, in the same way Billy the Kid is a very popular subject of movies and books and things like that. And in those cases, uh, historians failed us because they allowed folklore to take over history. There was nothing glamorous about Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid was a cattle rustler. There was nothing glamorous about Jesse James or Bonnie and Clyde. They were bank robbers and killers. Charles Whitman is like those people insofar as we know why he did what he did. We know why he was angry. We know why Charles Whitman uh, killed a lot of innocent people. But in the end, he did it because he wanted to, and he was a murderer. Following Whitman's death, President Lyndon Johnson sent notes of condolence to each of the victim's families and personally ordered the FBI to investigate. Governor John Connolly, a man who has also been felled by a sniper's bullet, said tonight in Rio de Janeiro that he is canceling the remainder of his South Back American... Back in Texas, Governor John Connolly cut short a diplomatic trip to Central America and returned to Austin. Recruiting 11 experts in medical and psychological science, the governor created the Connolly Commission and sought a scientific explanation for the one-man massacre. As a result of the clamoring for answers and less than 24 hours after Whitman's death, Dr. Deschanar performed an autopsy. I had gotten word that night that the next day Dr. Coleman Deschanar was going to do an autopsy on Whitman <clears throat> out at the state hospital. So I went out to the state hospital about 9 o'clock and he had already finished his autopsy. Now Dr. Deschanar was a Hungarian and we didn't have uh, all of his credentials and so forth because he had trained behind the Iron Curtain. I asked him what he found. I'd known him quite well because I had done surgery at the state hospital when I was a resident. And uh, I said, where's the body? And I said, well, it's shipped back to the nursing home, uh, to the uh, funeral home, and is probably already en route to Florida, where he came from. So I said, well, what did you find? And he said, well, he had a brain tumor. And I said, where is the brain tumor? 
Well, he uh, handed me a pickle jar that had two or three pieces of brain tissue in it, each size of a domino. And he took the lid off and he said, see that little spot there on that one? That's a brain tumor. And uh, I questioned that. It looked like a little smudge of, um, of peanut butter, kind of tan peanut butter, about the size of your thumbnail. And I uh, said, well, what part of the brain did that come from? And he said, that came from the, uh, from the pons. That's a part of the brain stem. And that's really sort of the switchboard, the intersection of all the connections in your brain. And it's really sort of where you live. Whitman hadn't had any neurological symptoms. He hadn't shown any paralysis. He didn't have any, uh, any of the typical neurological symptoms. Uh, and with a tumor that size at that location, would be fatal. And besides that, the, uh, uh, the segment of the brain that controls behavior and uh, uh, stability versus instability, uh, psychological stability, instability, uh, is in the frontal cortex, in the front of the brain, not down in the brain stem. So uh, I left uh, a rather uh, befuddled because I thought, well, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure this is it, but the press picked it up. Others sought a non-organic explanation for the mass murder. Several weeks before climbing the tower, Whitman sought psychiatric help from Dr. Maurice Heatley, the staff psychiatrist at the University of Texas Student Health Center. In March, when he saw Dr. Heatley, we have to remember that that was within a couple of weeks of his going to Florida, picking up his mother, and bringing her back to, uh, to Austin. So he was a very tormented young man, and there's no question about that. Dr. Heatley, as a matter of psychiatry, invites him to fantasize. I think it was called inquiry at the time. What do you think about? What do you fantasize about? What do you dream about? And so Whitman was invited to, to do that by Dr. Heatley, and he did. And he said, you know, sometimes I think of going to the top of the tower with a deer rifle and shooting people. Any psychiatrist uh, who invites those kinds of comments hears them all the time. And so Dr. Heatley concluded that this was a passing fantasy. And, you know, you could even argue that it was that because that happened in March and the tower shooting didn't happen until a few months later on August 1st. Everything Heatley wrote is right. Um, he was oozing with hostility. I mean, we know that. There's no question about that. Dr. Heatley has gotten a bad rap, in my opinion, because he did the appropriate thing. He asked Whitman to come back, and, he, and Whitman didn't. Mr. Whitman's uh, plate was very full. He had a heavy course load. He had a marriage to support. Uh, he was a, a busy, sort of driven man. Uh, with great accomplishments from the past, a Boy Scout, Eagle Scout at the age of uh, 12. And that sort of personality uh, can become, uh, can feel lots of pressure to do things. And in that, in that sense, uh, if, if that is frustrated, if he's not able to do, do all of those things that his personality drives him to do, uh, 
uh, and he comes across uh, a, a situation where he is his his anger, his frustration, his helplessness uh, overwhelm him. And then, if a tumor is there and it decreases his ability to control his behavior, then something bad can happen. Forty years after Charles Whitman's actions, Austin has changed and grown tremendously from the small college town it was in the summer of 1966. But surprisingly, almost all the physical locations tied to the murders still remain much as they were on that hot August day. The Goodall Wooten Dormitory, where Charles Whitman first lived as a UT freshman, still houses students in the shadow of the tower, just as it did in the fall of 61. The Sears department store, where Whitman purchased the 12-gauge shotgun, still occupies Hancock Center. The barber shop, where Billy Snowden was shot in the shoulder from a distance of over 500 yards, still offers discount haircuts. Although now, the university's communications building blocks the 1966 line of fire. Brackenridge Hospital still serves the people of Austin. Although nothing remains of the original building, a historical marker stands outside the emergency room entrance commemorating the hospital's services to the community, including the many lives saved within its walls on August 1, 1966. The Penthouse Apartments building, where Whitman's mother lived and died, still stands. Two blocks down Guadalupe Street, the Telephone Exchange building, where Kathy Whitman worked her last shift, still operates. Similarly, Sydney Lanier High School, where Kathy Whitman taught science classes, still educates Austin children, although it has been converted and renamed Burnett Middle School. According to school officials, the ghost of Kathy Whitman still roams the halls at night. They're quick to add, though, that her ghost is a benevolent poltergeist without malicious intent. For those wishing to pay their respects, Kathleen Leisner Whitman is buried in the Davis Greenlawn Cemetery in Rosenberg, Texas. The small house at 906 Jewel Street, where Charlie and Kathy lived and Kathy died, remains remarkably unchanged and has become something of an Austin landmark for those interested in true crime. According to the current residents, it is not uncommon for cars to drive slowly down the street, come to a stop, and take souvenir snapshots of the Whitman house. On the grounds of the university itself, the reminders of Whitman's mass murder are everywhere. The first bullet fired at Officer Billy Speed has left a lasting impression in concrete. The flagpoles, stairwells, and sidewalks, where so many people took cover and a few bled to death, are much the same as they were in the summer of 1966. And of course, towering over all other landmarks in the Whitman tragedy is the tower itself. At once a soaring symbol of Texas pride and accomplishment, the bullet holes that pockmark its facade stand in mute testimony to its role as a scene of violent crime. It's been 40 years. Can you imagine? That's a long time since this crazy, crazy madman uh, climbed up there and started committing these despicable acts. Well, why has that remained so much in our public consciousness? And I've long maintained, long maintained that uh, you take the tragedies that have occurred since then, take Oklahoma City. Now, that much greater in scope, uh, killed more people, uh, 
much more dramatic uh, politically as well as just uh, personally for everyone. Uh, it's not talked about as much as the tower incident is with the sniper there. Uh, and I even maintain that maybe uh, the World Trade Center at some point may come almost to this level in the future. And the reason I say this is there is no overwhelming, commanding, dominating picture of Oklahoma City. That building is gone. Uh, it was leveled. The World Trade Center is leveled. The tower, UT's tower, still stands there as a symbol of all that it was before the event. But now, after that event, uh, 40 years ago, it carries that little bit of a memory jogger for people who look at it, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it's so dominant uh, over the old whole uh, landscape of the city of Austin. You can't get away from it, just like the Capitol. It's, it's there, it's always there. And I think uh, even though we're not pointing at it every day and saying, oh, that's where that guy did that, uh, it's there as a silent reminder. And I think long after another 40 years has passed, the incidents that occurred that day, August 1st, 1966, atop the tower, will still be talked about more than what happened uh, in Oklahoma City uh, because there's no visual reminder left standing there. Despite the national notoriety of the Texas Sniper, the observation deck remained open to the public until four people over a six-year period committed suicide by jumping from the tower's heights. Exasperated university officials finally voted to close the deck permanently in 1974. For the next 24 years, the deck remained off-limits until Larry Faulkner was sworn in as the university's new president in 1999. I settled very early on the idea of reopening the tower even before arriving at UT uh, as president, um, and I uh, believed it was a very important thing for us to undertake. Well, it was evident to me that we wouldn't be able to reopen the tower unless we addressed the security issues. I believed that it wouldn't be possible really to get the regents persuaded to reopen it unless we made it literally impossible for uh, the acts of the past to uh, reoccur. You know, we hired a craftsman to design a, an architecturally as attractive as we could make it uh, structure to go up there and it took a while to execute it because it was in stainless steel. The communications power of that tower uh, I never ceased marveling over uh, while I was president. It is a powerful, powerful symbolic element for the University of Texas and I wanted to reinforce the positive power before I arrived as president and during all those years uh, when it was a forbidden place, uh, people spent most of their time talking about the tower in terms of what happened there August 1st, 1966. And now you hardly hear those conversations. When you think about what the University of Texas does day in and day out for the people of Texas, what is Charles Whitman? Should we allow an 
angry young man who murders people to dominate what we say about the tower and what it means and, uh, and what the university stands for. What is Charles Whitman compared to the hundreds of thousands of people who've walked away from that place with a diploma? The university's tower was built to symbolize pride and academic achievement in striving for success and for dedicating oneself to be the very best. Charles Whitman defiled that symbol, unable to handle life's everyday obstacles to provide for his family or achieve worthiness in the eyes of his abusive father. He chose a coward's path. In the eyes of Texas, Charles Whitman was simply a killer.